But first, I'm going to shake things up a little bit. It's a very special launch week for our very own dear Patty Callahan Henry and the secret book of Flora Lee. So to celebrate, I've got a few questions for her. Hello, Patty. Hi, Ron. So excited that launch week is here. Oh my gosh. We have been talking about this. So you were with me when I sold this book. Yes, yes. To Atria in February of last year. So poor you have had to hear me talk about this book for the past 15 months. I think of a marriage as a tiny community within a community, you know, and you have to make sacrifices and you have to do for others what you would want them to do for you and and so on. And so at what point is selfishness, you know, does it cross the line into something wrong and it where is the line drawn you know basically how how far are we allowed to go to save our own lives and that's really what the book is about welcome to the friends and fiction writers block podcast four new york times best-selling authors one rock star librarian and endless stories join mary Kay andrews Kristen harmel Christy Woodson Harvey and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. I am Ron Block, and we have a huge treat today. We, of course, have a wonderful guest. Mary Beth Keene is going to be joining us to talk about her new, highly anticipated novel, The Half Moon. But first, I'm going to shake things up a little bit. It's a very special launch week for our very own dear Patty Callahan Henry and the secret book of Flora Lee. So to celebrate, I've got a few questions for her. Hello, Patty. Hi, Ron. So excited that launch week is here. Oh my gosh. We have been talking about this. So you were with me when I sold this book. Yes. Yes. To Atria in February of last year. So poor you have had to hear me talk about this book for the past 15 months. So... Poor who? Oh my God. I love it. It's like, um, you just, just feel so good for you. I feel like it's, it's celebratory. It's really been fun. It's really been fun. It's really, it's, it's like, it's like raising a child in a way. Yes, You just love watching it grow and grow and grow and, and get to where you set it free into the world. Yeah. I'm really excited for the world to finally read it. What an exciting lead up to this release, and now it's out in stores. There have been too many accolades to fully list, but you've gotten some unbelievable blurbs. A coveted starred review from Kirkus, universal praise from the friends and fiction community, which is highly valuable. But can I give a shout out to the fact that you earned an Indie Next pick, a library read selection, and drum roll... The Secret Book of Flora Lee is the May Barnes & Noble Book Club selection. And that's nationwide, right? I mean, right. it's everywhere. It's everywhere. everywhere. Every store. Yeah. How exciting is that? Oh, my gosh. When they told me that, I I 
literally fell from my chair. And I was, I, I, I was actually filming a show for friends and fiction and I couldn't react. Like I couldn't, my editor was trying to call and call and call. So I texted her and she, I said, I can't talk for an hour and a half. Is it important? And she said, yes. And she texted me that. And I shut off my camera for a minute and just was like, oh my God. <laughs> so I am, I, I, I mean, what we want, you know, with our work, and we're going to talk about to Mary Beth about this too, because our books come out on the same day, right. is we want our readers to find them right? Like if they can't find them, they can't read them. Our book is just some pages between covers until the reader reads it and brings it alive. And when someone like Barnes and Noble says you are our nationwide pick for May, I know that it has a chance of finding its readers. And so I'm really excited about that. Florally nationwide. There we go. Okay. Uh, But the big question is, how did you keep it a secret? It was really hard. I... (laughs) (laughs) I told my daughter because she lives in Hawaii and wouldn't tell a soul. And of course I told my husband, but I had to, I mean, it's what they ask you to do. Right. And I didn't want to put anything in jeopardy. And so um, until, until April 26th, I had to keep it under my hat. And you did, you did. There's so many times you probably could have let it slip, but you held yourself back. I did. I did. So I remember even before your deal with Atria, way back, we were in Beaufort, North Carolina. You sat and you showed me a little drawing of the cover and you told me what the story was about. And I got goosebumps then. And so it's like I said, it's it's just such an amazing journey that this book has had. So now that it's here in its form and everybody's going to get their hands on it, tell us a little bit about the story. What's the story? Mm, I'll just give you a brief recap because um, you can read it on the book flap. But we meet the Linden family in 1939 in England. We meet an older sister named Hazel and a little sister named Flora Lee, whose name is on the cover. And what is happening in 1939 in England is something called Operation Pied Piper, which is an operation or a scheme where they send all the children away from the cities to the country to be safe from the imminent bombs that end up not coming for another year. And Hazel and Flora Lee are sent to live with this beautiful family in the country. And they're in a little hamlet, this kind of idyllic hamlet called Binzie in Oxfordshire, right on the River Thames. But of course, they miss their family. So the older sister, Hazel, to keep the little sister, who's only five, calm, she makes up a fairy tale world for her. The fairy tale world is called Whisperwood and the River of Stars. In Whisperwood, they can be anything they want, a fox, an owl, a bird. They can be invisible. They can talk to the chipmunk. It is a land that they can have or be anything they want. But of course, it's imaginary. And they tell it at night. They tell it in the woodlands. They tell it in a riven tree. And it's a secret between just the two of them. Well, a year goes by. And the unthinkable happens when Flora Lee disappears playing on the edge of the River Thames. And Hazel blames herself for she believes that Flora Lee has gone to search for Whisperwood. And so then we flash forward 20 years and Flora Lee was never found. And Hazel is now living in London. It's the 60s. The skirts are rising. The music is jamming. And Hazel is working in an antiquarian bookshop. She is in the back room. 
and a package comes in and she is responsible for logging in the incoming antiquarian or new or rare books. And she unwraps a package and it is a first edition original illustrations of a American fairy tale called Whisperwood and the River of Stars. Ooh, the goosebumps are back. (laughs) Yes. That's awesome. Um, So can you tell us a little bit of, we've mentioned kind of the the bookends of it, but talk talk to us about the journey that the book has been on and how you, how you started and how it, it all progressed. You know, my original idea for the story came when I was writing Once Upon a Wardrobe, and I discovered that the operation that sends children from the city to the country is called Operation Pied Piper. And being a lover, you know what a geek I am, of mythology and legend, I was like, Pied Piper? I need to remind myself because I think that's a terrible legend. And I pulled it up. And sure enough, the legend of the Pied Piper is ironically and horribly a German legend about a piper who plays a flute and lures children away from the town and they disappear. They disappear and drown in the River Wyvern, which is a, a river in Germany. And I thought, why would they name an operation to keep children safe after a horrible legend and and fairy tale. And that just started, you know, where do stories come from? I don't know. That seed was planted. I started imagining someone, a child who disappeared into a river, you know, my obsession with fairy tales and, and that, that all these things I love antiquarian bookshops, fairy tales, sisters, mystery, the English countryside, they all just turned into this vine and this tree of this story. And this amazing story, I have to say. But the other thing that really uh, struck me with this one is I've known this, but it really solidifies for the readers that you always put your heart and soul into your writing and your books and actually toward your readers too. So do you often talk about the idea of where do stories come from? What drives your story and, and your obsession with doing all these things? I think, you know, I often give talks about, you know, the things I wish I'd known when I first started writing. And the first thing I always list is that if you let your real life and your creative life meld together, like they are not separate. You can't say over here, I'm going to write novels about things I care about. And over here, I'm going to live my real life and drive carpool and do the laundry and, you know, what, whatever it is we do in our lives. Right. Right. And if we can combine these pieces of our lives, what the stories that matter end up being about are the things we care about. And it, I think, Once I started writing historical fiction in 2018, my first historical fiction novel came out, I started taking even more pieces of the things that I'm obsessed about, the -hmm. things that I wonder about, the things that keep me up at night. And so if I'm doing that, that means I'm putting everything into the novel. Well done. Well done. Well, this is pub week and we are so excited for readers to get their hands on the secret book of flora lee and if you need any more recommendations just contact me people and i will tell you all about flora lee (laughs) so okay thank you patty and on to our guest oh i can't wait to talk to mary beth let's get going i know i love the book 
Speaking of books out this week, our guest today is no stranger to our readers. Her new book, The Half Moon, is another stunner. In fact, one fellow writer said, I adored this compelling, touching, exquisitely crafted story about a marriage in crisis. And that was one Leanne Moriarty, New York Times bestselling author of Big Little Lies. The Half Moon is also named a most anticipated book of the year by Vogue, Entertainment Weekly, Bookpage, LitHub, and more. Mary Beth Keene attended Barnard College and the University of Virginia, where she received her MFA. She was awarded a John S. Guggenheim Fellowship for Fiction Writing and has received citations from the National Book Foundation, PEN America, and the Hemingway Society. She is the author of The Walking People, Fever, and Ask Again Yes, which was a New York Times bestseller and a Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon pick. Ask Again Yes has been sold in 22 languages. Mary Beth lives in New York with her family, but right now she's here with us on the podcast. So welcome, Yay. Mary Beth. Thank you for having me. Hi, you guys. Hi. <laughs> we're so excited because Patty and I were texting back and forth all the little details we wanted to talk about and then kind of realized we couldn't because there's too many spoilers. <laughs> but we'll try to stay away from those. <laughs> but we're so, so excited to talk about the book. Um, the title is so great. Can you give our listeners an overview of what the book is about? And then our favorite follow-up is, what is it really about? Yeah. Well, that it's funny that it is a surprisingly difficult question, you know, what a book is about. Mm -hmm. um, there's the vehicle, there's a bar uh, in a small town. It's the same town for people who might have read Ask Again Yes, um, where that was set. Uh, completely different people. There's no, there are no overlapping characters, but essentially it's about a marriage. The man in the marriage owns a local bar. It's been his dream to own a pub his whole life. And um, it's not doing that well. At the same time, his marriage is not doing that well because they have sort of different disappointments and things are coming to a head. And so this is a critical week in their lives. Um, there's a snowstorm that sort of locks them in place and a lot gets figured out during that time. And that's, that's basically it. I mean, this story is really about you know, love, I guess. Mm. Is it enough? We fall in love when we're young and we think it's the most powerful feeling in the world. And it is, but at a certain point, especially at mid age, you know, I think you start thinking about what you owe to yourself, you know, what you owe to this relationship, how you find your individuality within this partnership, this little, I think of a marriage as a tiny community within a community, you know, and you have to make sacrifices and you have to do for others what you would want them to do for you and and so on and so at what point is selfishness you know does it cross the line into something wrong and it where is the line drawn you know basically how how far are we allowed to go to save our own lives and that's really what the book is about oh, so well said and I know the other readers are going to do this too, but like putting yourself into this situation and kind of thinking what you would do and, and thinking back on our own choices, just um, that's what, what a good book does. Well, I hope so. I mean, I listen to a lot of gossip because I'm living in a small town with kids and people are amazing and the information they churn out about other people. And I'm a writer. And so I'm listening as a regular human with flaws. You know, there are things that interest me, of course, but also as a writer, I'm fascinated by how much people think they know and understand about what's going on inside other people's houses. It's astonishing. 
you know, like, and what people are interested in above other things is really a reflection of whatever worries they have about their own lives and their own choices. And so that's all in this too. Um, just listening and imagining and assuming that we're always wrong. None of us really know what it's like to be married to another person. I often say that being a writer is um, being a pretend or real psychoanalyst, oh, right? yeah. like taking, taking it apart. And maybe you just answered this, but one of my favorite things to find out and to talk about, because I love talking about where do stories come from, is where was the first seed of this story? Can you find it? Can you say where the origin of this story was or the initial idea for the book? Um. I mean, not really. It, it, as you know, there are so many interesting topics. That, you know, why do you choose one thing above yeah. another? I don't know. But I think in part it was um, something about finishing Ask Again. Yes, the main character in that book, Peter, and I think of the book as belonging to Peter. He was so closed off. You know, he had no friends. He was so internal. Um, and he you know, he, he's a character I really love and he'll be with me my whole life. But at the same time, I, I feel like I craved someone who was totally different from him. And I think Malcolm came out of that. He's like the guy, he's gregarious. He has so many friends. He doesn't, he's not, not that he's not a thinker, but he, he is, and he has every deep emotion that every person has, but he just copes with it in a way that's so opposite of Peter. Um, the other thing that happened well, before I move on to that, my three books before this were set over like 40, 50 years. I wanted to sort of contain a story uh -huh. into a week. And then COVID hit. Um, and I wrote the bulk of this book during COVID. And so that snowstorm that happens in the book that sort of locks them in place, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm big on symbols and metaphors. I'm not. And they're certainly not conscious. But I was certainly writing from a place of that, you know, strange loneliness, which I think mm -hmm. I say... I was here with three people, my two boys and my husband. But at the same time, you know, we're wondering what's everyone else doing? You know, how are they getting by? And that's that's in this too, in a weird way. Although I did not want to write a COVID book. Well, it is. I haven't. Yeah, yeah. it is. No, no, you haven't. And and I think when I when we talk about origins, so many times we can pick one seed or another. And, you know, Malcolm is so opposite. <laughs> He is so gregarious. And what's fascinating to me about him is that he's very aware of his external personality. He knows he's charming. He knows he's gregarious. He knows how he comes across to other people. And so he's self-aware while being that. And it just makes us like him all the more. It's a power and he yeah. wields it mostly for good, you yeah. know, um, and not for evil. Yes. So. yes. Yes. Mostly being the operative word yes. there. Oh, yeah. Well, that's all humans, right? Right. <laughs> right. Definitely. Okay. So we talk often about ends of books and how they do it, but there's something about this one in the beginning got me. I loved the opening scenes in this book. Um, I felt like we were, ha you know, having a door opened that revealed a setting. It's revealed main characters and really the beginning vibe of what was to come. So did those scenes come first in your writing or did you go back after a lot of writing to start with that? The opening scene came first. Um, the the bar on that snowy night, you know, was she, should we open? Should we not open? You know, you need to make some money. And right. so like, this is a gamble that we're going to take. And 
that's just the life of owning a bar and a restaurant. And so, and that's always been really fascinating to me. And so I saw him just full of hope, you know, in the street, just hoping every single night and, and getting the vibe. He knows the place so well from the outside. He just got a vibe. Like there are people in there tonight, you know, it's bumping. It's going to, it's going to be a good night. Um, that, that did come first. Although I did hear Jess's voice first. Um, a lot of that got tossed. There was sort of like an epistolary version where Jess is writing her along. I mean, I've written 12 bad drafts before, you know, I land at the oh one. Oh my God, it feels so much better. But, uh, yeah, it's a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I think people really don't know how bad things are before they're good, <sighs> but um, it just didn't work. And I felt I wasn't sort of creating any sympathy for her. I find the third person uh, point of view to be much better at getting closer access to people who may not know themselves that well. The first person is trickier like that. So, so that, you know, that was a mistake. I went down that road for a while. Not a mistake. It was just necessary work that I tossed. But, but that opening scene, even though it was different, we were always there. Yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just loved it. It was so good. And I think what's fascinating for people who are listening that aren't writers is what you just said. I went to scribble it down and I don't have a pen, so I'll have to listen again. But with most people don't know how bad it is before it's at least decent hopefully good. And, um, to know that you approach Jess and Malcolm from every different angle before they're the version that we read now is, I love your take on it's a necessary writing because I will kvetch and moan about wasted pages and wasted months and lately a wasted year. And I'm reminded over and over that it's never wasted. No. Right. Something I mean, you know that better than I do. You've written so many books. I mean, it's just something that ha- that's the only thing I've learned from book to book. It really yeah. is. And something grows. I think something grows out of that soil. Something grows out of the soil of the pages that don't work. They're 100%. fertile enough that even though they didn't work or this is what I tell myself, they have something in them that I can salvage something. I've got to find the most, tell me if this is what you did with Jess and Malcolm in the voice. I have to find what was the most interesting thing to me to even begin that story and the pages that didn't work. What is the part that grabbed me from the beginning? And can I get back to that to try and tell the story? And you're also sharpening your understanding of them and their world and everything they're living through, even if I think, even if it ends up in the recycling bin, there's something in the authority of the language that comes through in the next draft that you've carried over because you Mm. did all of that bad work. You know, there's so many pages here. I know what they're doing. You know, I know where they've gone on vacation. I know where they, you know, all the conversations that don't end up being there, it comes through in a sort of you know, writing fiction is like being a very good liar. It's all about confidence. You just have to stride forward and hope never, no one asks, you know, the obvious questions that would sort of puncture that fictional world. And yeah. I think the drafting helps with that, at least. At least. I don't know. I actually exactly. don't know, but I hope so. That I, 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 maybe it's just what we tell ourselves, but I can get into the next draft at least knowing a lot more than I knew yeah. in the first draft. Yeah. yeah. And that's progress. Yep. I want to read all the drafts. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And I don't save them either. I just you write don't? right over them. No, 
because I don't want to go back and take anything and do start doing that Frankenstein stuff. I don't save them. Oh, no, I save them, but I don't cut and paste. But I can't no. just delete. Oh. Huh. Okay. Well, I save like over it and over oh, okay. it and over it. it. It's like got gone. It. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, one of the things that just occurred to me that I want to ask is about um, Malcolm and Jess. Did you have their stories all plotted out as you went through or did you or did you kind of write it as you went along? Um, no, I don't really know that much as I when I go th- like at the beginning of a book plot wise, but I did know them. I knew that. Um, well, without spoiling the plot, there are certain things that happen right. that I know. I knew essentially who they were and what was going to happen to them externally. I did not know whether they would break up or stay together in the end. Um, I didn't know whether Jess's uh, particular dream in particular would come true or not. Um, if you catch my drift, I'm horrible yeah. for ruining plots because it doesn't matter to me. You could ruin a plot of a great book and I'll still read I'll still it. And read I don't it. care. Yep. So yep. I'm, I assume everyone's like that. I'll be like, oh, Ted Lasso last night. Bleh. And then everyone's like, I hate you <laughs> with all my, you know, and I'm like, oh, so sorry. Is that, um, but anyway, so there are things like that, that I had to write to find out, but you know, who Jess is as a person, how strong she is. She can be a little bit, um, I think cold sometimes, you know, she's so yep. analytical. She's a problem solver. Um, and in a way, that's her role in this. She's solving a problem. And that's how she thinks of pretty much all the decisions that she makes here. Uh, and Malcolm is so different, but I didn't know, no, the specifics that what would happen. I, I didn't know. And I didn't know Roddy's role. He was the biggest. I kept coming back to him as a character. He just sort of sort of showed up in the first draft as this like bumbling kid who's like a little lost. He's a bar, like every young bartender. And... um but he was in, I kept circling back to him and I thought, if I keep doing this, I'm going to have to scrap these 50 pages because it's too much Roddy time. And so I, I think he like earned his way into the book in a, in a bigger way. Um, sort of despite my efforts to keep him out of the plot. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but he was a surprise to me. That's cool. Okay. So one of the hot topics that people are going to talk about when they read the book is a big question. What is truth and who owns it? Um, What do you hope readers think about truth when they're reading the book? Gosh, that's a, I never thought about that. I mean, I think I've thought a lot about secrets, which I Mm. guess is sort of in the same camp, but truth. I mean, I think within a relationship, within even the most loving and committed relationships, it's sort of important to have your own truth, maybe as your own private knowledge or secret or or something that you know about yourself or you know about your partner that you're just not going to share. It's not something you're going to talk about. And I think that's okay. I mean, there's so much discussion now about being open and you're all, you know, you're like one person. You absolutely are not, in my opinion, you're two different people and you always will be. Um, About truth, you know, I think it's just sort of the the epigraph of the book alludes to that. It's it's not as black and white as people think. If Malcolm were to write this story, if I were to write the story from his first person point of view and then Jess's and then one of their friends, you know, we, they'd all be true, but they'd be three different books. So, right. you know, I think it's true in life. It's true all the time. Um, 
and that's it. Writing, finding somewhere in the middle of that is where a book comes out of. Yep. Wow. The other thing I think people are going to talk about or think about is um, what we hope and what is reality. So we, we look forward to it. And that's, that's just something that really comes through in the book and you really relate to the characters from those viewpoints. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the main struggle in a long-term relationship is at one point, someone is going to have a dream that conflicts with someone else's dream. You know, in order for you to achieve your thing, it's very likely that I will have to step up and do all sorts of, you know, and and back and forth. And so um, dreams are important, but they get more complicated, I think, with time. How, Mm -hmm. how, How many people are you willing to hurt, what kind of life are you willing to have in order to achieve those dreams? Um, and that's a question I think we all have to ask ourselves. I agreed. <laughs> so back to the relationships for a minute and also the mystery of the missing patron, which is right up front. So yeah. it's not a spoiler. I think it's on the flap. So that's, okay. I think it's on the flap. And <laughs> so there, there is this missing patron and um, he's tied to Roddy. Did you know I mean, the bottom line question is in this, I I once heard Neil Gaiman describe plotting versus pantsing as architect versus gardener. And I really like that. And so the mystery of the missing patron, the ending, did you have, I know you used many drafts, but did you have this whole architecture that you knew what happened to him or did you discover it as you went along? Oh, I discover, I mean, again, that's like the, uh, other plot points we discussed, like I, there's every version of what happens okay. to trip, but essentially I knew he was important to me because everybody in this book, everyone is trying to sort of take the reins in their lives and redirect something. Um, and trip is probably the most extreme example. I read so many books about people who, you know, f- Make their own deaths, go off the grid, uh, do all sorts, change their names, disappear, stage a kidnapping. You know, and have, is this real? Do people really do this? In fact, they do. They um, do. <laughs> and I, I had a bunch of emails with a guy. He's like a, a person who hunts down people, you know, tries to find them for debt collection and all sorts of stuff. And his stories were fascinating. And, um, you know, why do you want to do that? How miserable are you? What are you running from? Um, my husband and I were in Peru once we hiked to Machu Picchu and you do, I, I have such sympathy for a person like Tripp. I, I don't have sympathy for whatever he did to make him run, but we were on this bus tour or something. I'm like, why, why don't we live here? Why don't we live there? Why don't we live every place we visit? We wonder why we don't live there. Yeah. And then we come back to the New York city Metro area, you know, and we complain about our taxes and traffic and, and I, you know, I don't know how to do it. I don't know if I just don't have the energy or it would just take more. Or are those places as appealing once you get there? Probably not. They have their own problems, but it's a very appealing dream for a moment to take you outside of yourself. And everybody in this book, you know, either in a, a big way or a more subtle way is trying to change their own lives halfway through. Um, or in Roddy's case, maybe on the early end. But well, they're all dreaming yeah. of something if not bigger than different. Yeah. Something that makes them happier. Yeah. Something, something that gives them some hope, even if they only talk about it and then all of a sudden do it. When you were going back and forth between Jess and Malcolm's point of view, uh, 
I was shifting allegiance every once in a bit. <laughs> were you doing the same thing? As you oh, were? yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I thought they were both in the I mean, I had more trouble. I really sided with Jess um, for certain aspects of the book. And it's interesting in the early drafts. So I have a couple of cousins who are bartenders or they own their own bars or, you know, they're just good readers too. And I've collection of friends who read for me and the men all sided with Malcolm and the women all sided with Jess. You oh, know? That's funny. Um, like this is interesting as a study, but yeah, I mean, I, when you're in someone, this is the whole thing. This is what fiction does, right? It creates empathy. But when you're in someone's point of view and you're hearing what they have to say and they're the ways they were hurt or felt, you know, overlooked or, or whatever it is, then you side with them. Your heart goes out to them. And then you move over to the next guy and your heart goes out. I mean, that's the problem. That's the problem in life. And it makes for a good, you know, makes for a good sense of friction and worry in, um, in fiction. So. And also what one knows and the other one doesn't know, and we're privileged, but they're not. Right. Right. We have these privileges into Jess and privileges into Malcolm. I like when she calls him Mal. And yeah. we have these privileges that they don't have. Right. Yeah. And that's trickier in the first person, which is why I love third person. Yeah. It really works. Um, you t- you've touched on this a little bit. Um, I want to absolutely commend you for creating the minor characters or the secondary characters in here, because no great book is successful without them. And, and they're all relatable and people we might know. You've talked about how you kind of listen in and watch the n- neighborhood you're in, but um, and then of course the bartenders in your family. Can you talk about where they all came from and and were they based on people that you know? And are they mad at you? <laughs> uh, no, I never. Be, uh, I do have some cousins who think this. You know, they're like, "Is Malcolm me?" I'm like, do you think that you're handsome and charming? Those are your main characteristics, <laughs> you know? And they're like, well, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm like, this is amazing. Um, no, uh, I, I'm not good. I, this is why I don't write nonfiction. The moment I have a character of any kind, it, they immediately have to become themselves. If I'm trying to match anyone in real life, my writing just goes dead. Um, that's why I can never write a memoir. I would just end up making everything up or embellishing stuff or, you know, so it's, it's not based on anyone. I would say there are certain archetypes in my life and in the place where I live that uh, like Malcolm's mother, for example, she is like a classic. I live in a town called Pearl river, which Gillum is based on. Um, She's like a classic Pearl river mom, you know, loves her boy, even though he's like 45, she's making him lasagnas and dropping them off. And, um, you know, she probably drinks like boxed white wine on a Friday night and makes herself a grilled cheese. And she's just having a ball. Um, and I liked giving her a little happiness in her life, a little secret too, a little truth that she's living out much to Malcolm's surprise later on. But, um, you know, our parents can surprise us at any age. And I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. Yes. And I can't say that I always enjoy all parts of books, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I wanted his world to appear and feel full, you know, full of different people and characters and the neighbors, you know, slowing down to say, what's up? The best friends, Patrick and yeah. John. Yeah. Um, yes. And the best friend who's kind of like, do we actually like this guy after 40 years? You know, it's like, is he in fact very annoying? Okay. We love him. He's just grandfathered in. Everybody has a friend like that, you know, and, um, and I come from such a place that feels like busy and, you know, the 
you know, utility workers and the, you know, the postman and the everybody. And, and so I wanted it, I wanted it to feel very much that way and that you can feel lonely even within a place that is like so busy and full of life. Mm. Well, well done. Well done, Mary mm-hmm. Beth. Thanks. So I want to circle back to theme just for a minute before we let you go into this great pub week. For me, I don't go into a novel with some master theme in mind, something I want to teach or show. Um, but themes rise up. And I came to this line near the end of your book. So I'm going to read it. It says, but in the end, you can have only one life, one at a time, at least. You could turn, you could pause for a while, but you couldn't go down two streets at once. When I read that, I read it twice. And then I found my hand on my heart going, yep, yep, absolutely. (laughs) So I want you to talk about those themes that rise up in that novel for you towards the end. And if you were aiming for that, or if that kind of came up in, in the work itself. I mean, I, I don't know if I was aiming for it. I don't think about theme, um, Mm. but there was a restlessness I'm sure within me, you know, that's what, what the book was born out of, you know, and I think sometimes I'm writing to find out what it is that I'm obsessed with. I can't quite nail it sometimes. And it comes out in the book. That's the whole point. Um, And I think it, 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 that if there's any part of the book, that's essentially me, it's that, you know, why are we here? Why are we in the life that we're in? And to what degree should we double down on it, you know, to uh, embrace it if you're, if you're happy. And I think, you know, maybe like a lot of people, I tend, my mind wanders. I think, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? Where would I be? Who would I be with? What would life look like? And it's just such a toxic thing, at least for me, when you, I look around and I see I have a beautiful family and, you know, people who love me. It's not that easy to come by, you know, and, um, and there are people in this world who don't have that and would kill for it. And so I guess I'm just, constantly trying to remind myself of that to sort of calm that restlessness a little bit. And, and just, it doesn't matter. Yes. Life would have been different had you made different decisions, but why does it matter? These are the decisions you made. And, you know, it landed me in a place that feels pretty good, you know, thankfully. Um, But that's, that's me, I think, reminding myself that it's not a healthy thing to necessarily always think of that. You can't be on one street, one oak lined, beautiful street and wonder if the other street is more beautiful. It's just such an unhealthy thing. And I, you hear it all the time. But it's so human. It is so human. Especially when we travel so much. Like what if I had made my life in this city or that city? Or I remember reading a long time ago, so I'm not going to be able to quote it directly, but it was in Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strait, I think. And someone sent in a letter and she wrote back that the life this woman who was writing to her didn't choose was a ghost ship. And she had to stand on the shore and wave at it as it disappeared over the horizon. Wow. Because it yeah. it was the ship she didn't choose. And I think of, I think about that sometimes. Yeah. Um, um, the epigraph in my first novel, I mean, I guess this is something I've always been sort of obsessed with. I wrote that novel when I was like 27, but it's a poem by Seamus Heaney. And it's basically that the poem is called Badgers. And it's a little section. It says, 
how precarious is it to choose not to love the life you're shown? You know, and I think about that over and over with each book. I mean, ask again, yes, for sure. It was just on every page. And in this book too, I think, I think it's a worthy question for lots of books. So, well, there's that line in Lucy Barton where her teacher says to her, you know, don't worry about your story. We all have one story to tell and we tell it over and over. And I think if we look at a through line of our work, like you just said, that you you had that quote in the front of your first book. So I think if we look hard enough, it might not seem that the books are anything alike, but in many ways we write about the things we're obsessed with. So I'm glad these are the things you're obsessed with, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and speaking of follow-ups, can you share what you might be working on now? Oh God. I mean, I don't know. I'm drafting. It's the ugly part. So I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah. I have an idea. I have like a little churning. I don't know what to call it. A little like simmering feeling about a book that's not set in Gillum, uh, thankfully. And uh, it'll take a while. You know, I don't, this part is, I don't know if it's true for you too, Patty, but it's very distracting. You know, I really admire the people who are like, you know, I wrote uh, 10,000 words in the airport last week. And I'm like, Oh, no, I got a Bloody Mary. And I read People magazine. I can't do that. You know, I'm not. So I, you know, and if I'm in San Francisco, I want to be in San Francisco, you know, I want to walk around and see things. And, and I'm not good at that. And so this next couple of months, but I've learned to forgive myself for not writing. And I think reading and thinking counts as writing, I can read like crazy in this period. Um, And it's in there, you know, it's, 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 there's something that's sharpening and I'm working. I did get some words down um, before all of this hoopla began. Um, and I'm glad I won't come out of tour like with a blank page in front of me. I think that's hard. But uh, yeah, it'll be a while though. I know. I keep saying, for those of you listening, Mary Beth and I, our books come out on the same day. So we're going on tour on the same day, hitting the road. And Mary Beth, I did the same thing. I left like a breadcrumb trail for myself. So when I get back, I won't be like, what was that thing I was interested in? (laughs) What was that story idea? I just kind of, I had a goal to have at least when I came back, it wouldn't feel a stranger, even though it's definitely- Or it's terrifying. Yeah, Yeah. it's terrifying. Right. Well, you mentioned you were doing some reading. Is there uh, like one book that you're dying for everybody to read? Oh, God. Uh I've read a couple of good ones lately. Um, I just read Life and Other Love Songs by Anissa Gray. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read that. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, Rob Delaney's memoir, I think of the last couple of months, was the book that really stayed with me. It's a weird book to recommend to people, though, because it's so unbelievably sad. Right. I recommend it to my friend. She was like, thanks a million. I <laughs> cried for four nights in a row. But it's gorgeous. And it's such... A, I, I actually listened to the audiobook, uh, And so it was his voice. Um, but I felt like it actually taught me a lot. Um, yeah. What else? Uh, oh my gosh. It's like, I've never read before in my That's life. That's what happens I, when I people know that ask happens me to all too. of us. Well, yeah. I know we both read um, Adrian Brodeur's new oh one, Little God. Monsters. Yes. It's so good. And her pub day is not too far. Well, this is the other problem. So I can mention books and then people DM me to say, I, I couldn't find it. And then I look and it comes out in 2024. And yeah. so you know, because oh. you're getting so many galleys. But um, Adrian's comes out, I think, June 28th or something. The last Tuesday yeah, something in June. Like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I loved that book. That's I also beautiful. love, she knows Cape Cod so well. It was a Talk love letter to Cape Cod. Authority in the language. Um, yeah. 
she has it in spades for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry. You might want to edit. I'm coming up short. On- <laughs> no, you're good. No, you're good. You're go- no. I get up on a stage and this people is- say, what, what are your favorite books? And I'm like, Nancy Drew. I don't know. Like, I just go completely. <laughs> like, oh, I guess I've never read a book. Um, I don't, I can't uh, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Some something. It has it has a cover. Mary Beth, it has been such a pleasure to learn more about the Half Moon and your approach to craft. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Can you tell everyone where they might connect with you online or on tour, how to find where you are, all those things? Um, I post all new events. Instagram and Facebook are the places I mostly post, you know, the most updated information. Um, my tour schedule is up in both of those places. Also my website, marybethkeen.com. Okay. Fantastic. Wonderful. Wonderful. And what's interesting, I'm going to throw a little plug in here, is that you're both visiting me here in Cleveland, and I am so excited that you're coming. I've never uh, been. I'm excited, too. Oh, well, you know, if you need anything, you let me know. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll totally see you when you're here. But um, Patty will be here on May 9th, and Mary Beth, you'll be here on May 10th. So it's one day apart. Okay. Well, I urge everybody who wants to see these two and many others to visit beyondbookjackets.com. You're not going to believe the lineup of authors we have coming to the library. And thank you to our listeners. We know how much content is out there and that you choose to spend time with us is a true gift. Thank you. And please be sure to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.